everybody's talking about inflation these days, and there's nobody better to ask than Mike Ashton, the inflation guy. Mike, thanks for coming back on. Yeah, it's good to be back here. Thank you for inviting me back. It must not have been that bad the first time. You know what? This is something that economists and people in your line of work don't like to do is go back and go, hey, what'd you say the last time? <laughs> right. But in your case, you were on the money. And I want to talk about that. First of all, this is Stuart Foley. I'm your host. This is the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. At the end of the day, though, I mean, you started doing your own podcast, right? Thanks to you. And yeah. lo and behold, I see you all over Bloomberg. And I'm like, maybe this podcast launched your career. I can't imagine, but you know, hey, you never know. <laughs> I'm a little I, old to be launching a career. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell me. Yeah, I can. I, I definitely, that one hits close to home. So let's talk about the inflation, what you talked about last time, right? So you talked about this concept of kernels of popcorn popping and that that's what, what inflation really was. I'm a geek about this kind of stuff. Can you talk just to kind of level set the conversation so that people can understand the terms that you're going to use? Talk us through the popcorn inflation analogy. Sure. So, you know, we, we tend to think about inflation and I think it has something to do with how it's taught, but we tend to think about inflation as sort of this smooth process that 5% inflation means all prices went up 5%. And that's obviously not the way it works in reality. Now, there's a lot of economics that doesn't work the way in reality. In fact, that's part of the problem we're having now is that the economists in charge are expecting these things to work the way they do in, in the book, and they don't really work that way. But when we look at inflation, you know, what happens is, you know, if you have 1% inflation, it doesn't mean that you're, you know, every year when you go into the the barber that they raise your cost of a haircut by 1%. And when you buy a tomato, it goes up in price, you know, every month by one twelfth of a percent or anything like that. That's not how it works. You know, prices are sticky and have jumps and not everybody raises their price at the same time. So it's the analogy I used last time was microwave popping corn, where you put a, a bag of microwave popping corn into the microwave you apply heat, and then you start to hear popcorns popping. They don't all pop at the same time. And the reason I use that analogy is that we have this tendency, and we were seeing it when we had our last, when we had this last podcast, we were seeing a tendency to sort of explain the individual pops that, well, this is used cars and it's because of this. And this is, we're having a problem with computer chips due to this and, and all these one-offs. And acting like they didn't matter because they were all one-offs. But the point is that that's what inflation is. Eventually, you have all of these one-offs popping and the microwave popping corn bag is full of popcorn. It's this sequence of different things popping all the time that gradually aggregates to the entire price level being higher. So that was sort of the, the analogy is that it's not a continuous process. It's a discontinuous process. And is it fair to say to kind of go on this popcorn analogy that at the end, you've got a bag full of popcorn and you've got a, several kernels that just didn't pop. So <laughs> right. at over any given period, some prices in the basket are going down, right? They can't yep. all, they're not all going up at a uniform rate and they're not all going up. Some are going down. Is that 
I don't want to put words in your mouth, but no, that's great. I mean, I, you know, let's take this, let's take this analogy until it breaks. Right. right. Yeah. And you also get some kernels in the bag that are a little bit burnt, right? So some of them pop more than others or pop earlier. So they get burnt. So yeah, there's an unevenness of the process and it would be really weird if they all kind of went up the same way. But at the end of the day, rather than focusing on the kernels, and especially if you're a policymaker and you're trying to figure out, well, how do I stop this? It doesn't, it's not helpful to focus on an individual kernel. Right. What's helpful is to say, well, let's remove heat from the bag. Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> the raw cause is we're pouring heat into the bag. Let's go just a one step further because I'm practicing without a license as it is. So here we go a little bit more. <laughs> so I've thought for a long time that this Phillips curve analogy where you've got this relationship between inflation, unemployment and fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus that, you know, that's sort of the theory behind it all on the underpinnings. But that requires in our vernacular here, the lid has to be on the pot or the popping corn is really only U.S. But once you get the global economy involved, is that why you said policymakers may be getting it wrong because it's not like what's taught in the book? Is that globalization? Is that geopolitical? But clearly it's different, right, today than it was taught when Adam Smith came up with a couple of ideas. I mean, is the model different? Let's say it like that. Yeah. I mean, look, look I think the problem is that a lot of the theories about inflation that policymakers use now, they've developed over the last quarter century when there was no inflation. And so testing those models has been difficult. And so, and so we're finding that there are a lot of things that they got wrong. And, you know, they're actually in the last couple of weeks, there have been a couple of papers that come from Fed staffers about inflation expectations and the importance or lack thereof of anchored inflation expectations. Now, I've been skeptical of that forever because I don't think that... Just for the people who... Anchored inflation expectations yeah. means like just in colloquial English. Sure. So the theory is that if everybody expects 2% inflation, then, and you get 5% inflation temporarily, that you kind of know it's going to be temporary because the inflation expectations are what actually drive prices. That a seller, a vendor cannot can persistently raise prices at 5% because the consumer will rebel and not buy the product because they expect 2%, you raised five. And so they think you're being mean and they won't buy your product. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go to my grocer and I say, you know what? Price of milk didn't, you went up too much. You're a big meanie. I'm not going to buy your milk. Right. Exactly. He says, then don't buy the milk. And <laughs> we're able to sell the milk at that price. Right. And so Inflation exp- it always seemed weird to me that if you know anybody who is a business owner, you know, they care about what their customers think. Absolutely. But that's not all they care about. <laughs> and so we also don't know how to measure inflation expectations very well. So relying on anchored inflation expectations to explain why it is that prices won't go up seemed really crazy. And these papers, you know, one of them in particular, basically said, you know, the theory behind this is weird and there's no reason to expect it to work. You know, the data doesn't suggest that it's worked. You know, the model is bad. And so, you know, that's one example of a model that was developed over the last quarter century was a really important model or still is 
for a lot of central bankers, and yet doesn't appear to really have much connection with reality. But there are a bunch of examples of that. And the Phillips curve is one of those things that gets debated a lot. And I do think that, you know, part of the problem is globalization, but part of the problem is also that Phillips curve means different things. So Phillips, when he wrote his original paper, said that unemployment and wages are related. He didn't say anything about the broad level of inflation, unemployment and wages. And it turns out that that's still true. Unemployment and wages are actually really, are still quite tightly related. Unemployment and consumer prices have become disconnected. But you can see there's already an extra step there, and that's, well, what are wages doing relative to consumer inflation? What are real wages doing? And that doesn't necessarily have anything, it doesn't rely on the same things right. as the general price level. So, so there are just problems with these models. And again, going back to it, we developed a lot of these models and in a period where there was no independent way to test them. And so, you know, now we're going and figuring out which of them break when we actually have actual inflation. So let's get back. I'm sorry, because I'm completely geeking out on that. <laughs> What'd you say last time? Because you were dead on the money. So just kind of you remind everybody what you said when we talked, I don't know, a quarter ago? I think what I, I said, I believe I used the the term spastic. What I was focused on was, you know, as someone who's who's mostly a monetarist, was that we were had money supply growth at, you know, 23% or 25% a year. And that was literally unprecedented. You know, we've never seen anything like that. And, and anything that was even, you know, like in the 70s, it got up to 14%, right? So, and and in fact, we've really never, we'd never seen any society where you had that kind of money growth that did not have inflation. And so it was absolutely inconceivable to me. Yes, money velocity declined for some different reasons, but it was inconceivable to me you could have that much money printing and not have it result in a vastly higher price level. And you know, so you have you know, the bottom line is that again, thinking about taking the heat off of the bag. Basically, you know, the the federal government was spending money as if it was just being printed, it was made up money. And then it turned out that it was being printed and made up money. Right. And, and so between those two things, not terribly surprisingly, you got inflation. And when we first talked, we weren't, we didn't have that inflation yet. It looked like it was, it was going up, but it wasn't 5% or anything like that. I think we were worried about used cars and that was kind of it at the time. So you also talked about, you know, insurance companies are obviously exposed to inflation mm -hmm. and they have, which means their liabilities go up. They also have big bond portfolios that when the inflation goes up, the value goes down. So generally, so that's an issue, right? And we said, what can insurers do? And I believe you also said that there's an increase in the probability of, you know, a tail event. So right. do you want to just kind of recap that? Because I want to get into your, yeah. your current outlook, because I think it's really a, a good one and an interesting one. Yeah. I guess in the context of, of an insurer, I think that insurers are sort of naturally positioned to understand the hurricane-like nature of an inflation event. You know, that they're infrequent events that have very long tails. So if you look historically through the data, you find that, you know, it isn't that inflation kind of goes from two to three to four to three to two and just kind of wanders around. It'll do that for a while, but then once it starts heading higher, you get very high numbers. And, you know, something like, I can't remember the numbers right now, but something like a third of the, 
the time in the last century that we've been over 4% inflation in the US, we've also been over 10. And so that's sort of the the problem from a, an investor's perspective. And again, I think insurers understand this better than a lot of investors is that you may have a portfolio that works pretty well at 2% inflation and 3% inflation and maybe starts to suffer a little bit at four, but completely becomes unraveled over that. And the problem is that once you get up to four, you just can't tell how far it's going to go. And it can go really, really far. And so you have these nonlinear effects. Again, there isn't a whole lot in the investment world that really behaves quite that way. But I guess it's a little bit like a credit breakage or something. Yeah, and I think too, just the way the regulatory framework is Hmm. set up and ratings framework is set up, right? You get a lower capital charge on highly rated fixed income instruments. And the things that can hedge inflation better than that, I'm not saying you can hedge inflation perfectly at all. But what I am saying is that long dated high grade corporate bonds are at the bottom of the list as the ways to do it, right? But the regulatory framework and ratings framework make it difficult for insurers to buy assets that can hedge that risk, which really puts them in a challenging position. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. Things like commodities that have very high inflation betas are just poison from the standpoint of an insurance company. Right, exactly. So I know you've got about but five components of your current outlook. Can we just start with the first one, core inflation? So, you know, there are different ways to measure inflation and the central tendency of inflation. And we tend to focus on on the core measures, core CBI, core PCE. In a second, I'll talk about the other things like median or trim mean, but, but core inflation. So back when everyone started to get concerned about inflation, you know, and core inflation, we were seeing these really large jumps up coming from things that were recovering from COVID, the COVID categories, people would call them, or the, the shutdown categories. So things like airfares that had gotten absolutely obliterated in 2020 were recovering. And by the way, haven't gotten all the way back to where they were previously, but were bouncing a lot. And so in the first half of this year, you had a bunch of, of those items lodging away from home, airfares, you know, things like that, that were bouncing back and were pushing core inflation higher. And that's kind of when everybody started to say, oh, this is transitory because these are just things coming back from the dead. The problem is now we have kind of high and kind of rising core inflation, but those categories are actually pushing down. Airfares have kind of rolled back over and, and the last couple of months have been declining. Hotel prices are going down again, partially because there have been some renewed shutdowns, but partly because they kind of go up and down. But you can no longer look at those things and say, well, this is all just used cars. Right. <laughs> it's exactly. all just airfares. Right. I mean, I, you know, you're starting to see cars on dealer lots. Not full, yeah. but definitely starting to see them, you know. Yeah. So you think in short that core inflation right now is being held down. You're an independent guy. And I mean, at the end of the day, that's a Mike Ashton statement that I love. And I, <laughs> I, I, I love that because I've not heard anybody else say that. 
it's being held down by the things that everybody was pointing to and saying that's the reason it was going up. And so those things aren't going up anymore. They're going down. So you can no longer look at core inflation where it is and say, well, that's because of those categories going up. It isn't anymore. And so, you know, core inflation is still rising, but one of the reasons it's still rising and is going to stay higher and, and keep moving higher for a while is that we have rent inflation. And that's, I think, you know, so we've moved from these kind of one-off things to these big, slow-moving, broad categories like shelter. And by the way, this isn't really a mystery. We've known for some time we were going to get a rise in shelter inflation. It was being held down by the eviction moratorium. You know, it turns out that when you stop people from moving around, then you can have all the increase in asking rent in the world. You can have all the increase in home prices. But if everybody is staying in the same apartment that they were in last year, and especially if they're not allowed to be thrown out so that not everyone pays, that tends to depress rents. And so that was what was happening. And as soon as we did away with the eviction moratorium, people started to move. People who hadn't paid rent suddenly said, I'm going to leave and go start paying rent somewhere else. And all those things started to push rent inflation higher. And it's going to keep pushing it higher for quite a while. So you know, I think we've moved beyond even just for that reason, we've moved beyond the whole COVID categories thing. And so it's getting harder and harder. Well, honestly, I think the whole transitory thing is dead. I mean, the, the things we we pointed to and we said those are transitory in the way it was originally meant, those aren't the reason that inflation is, is high and rising now. So you also are mentioning that inflation is broadening. Can you help with that? Just kind of explain yeah. it? So this was the actually the most alarming thing from the most recent CPI report. It wasn't rents. We kind of knew that was going to happen. It wasn't, you know, all the, the weird little categories. The most alarming thing was that if you looked at some of the broader measures of inflation, you saw very large increases. So median CPI, I probably don't have to explain this to your listeners, but I often explain it. You know, the median is is the point at which 50% of the categories and 50% of the weight in the basket is inflating slower than that, and 50% is inflating higher than that. So unlike an average, like core CPI, it's not influenced by the outliers. You know, the really, you know, the used car prices on one side and the airfares on the other side, those things don't even show up because we were talking about the middle of the distribution. Well, median inflation had the largest monthly change since 1990 in the most recent uh, figure. The 16% trimmed mean CPI, which is another way of looking at the middle of the distribution and cutting off the tails, also had the largest jump in decades. And so, you know, those are measures which are not going to be influenced by little one-off changes. That's indicating that the center of the distribution, that most prices are now rising. And, and median inflation jumped at a level that's, you know, roughly 5% annualized, you know, that zone. And that should be disturbing because that's real. And it means you're seeing it everywhere. Almost 80% of the components of CPI are inflating faster than two and a quarter. And two and wow. a quarter is roughly what the Fed's target equates to on CPI. It's roughly two and a quarter. And 80% of the basket is inflating faster than that. So, Heaven knows that there's enough versions of CPI in the world, but <laughs> right, core CPI. If I'm I'm reading between the lines here, but 
I can look at median CPI and perhaps get a more representative view than if I look at core CPI. Is that fair? Or is it, it I'm looking at two different things? No, no, that's that's true. You know, right now when they're all moving a lot, it's hard to figure out what's the best indicator. And they're all, they're going the same direction. They're just going at different rates because of the various base effects and how they, they happen. But, but yeah, if you had to pick an indicator that was going to help you forecast next year's inflation, then something like median or trim mean is much better than core inflation and headline. You know, think about headline inflation, which is core plus food and energy. The reason we take out food and energy is they're mean reverting. Well, they're not mean reverting recently, but they tend to be mean reverting. And so if gasoline, you know, goes up a ton and so headline inflation is 7%, but it's because of gasoline, then 7% isn't a good forecast. In fact, a better forecast is that that's going to reverse going forward. So when you look at a median or a trimmed mean, you don't get kind of those mean reversion effects as much. And so it tends to be a better forecast. That was kind of weird and quanty and geeky. I'm sorry about that. No, no, love it. That's <laughs> hey, they, you know, I mean, this ain't Joe Rogan. I mean, we're 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 here to talk inflation. I mean, we're. I saw the other day that like that you know the term geek is derogatory, and I'm like, not to me. Like, yeah, not <laughs> you in know, our business. No. So, uh, what about the argument that this is a supply side problem? Mm. And as soon as these shortages, we've got all these, you know, I, I was at a fundraiser the other day and somebody held up their phone and they said, this is all these dots. They had a, it was a map of the U.S. and they had all these green dots all over the both coasts. And they're saying, you know, this is all the ships that can't unload because mm. of this and that. And, you know, and, and these folks were not economists or investment folks, but it is just kind of how the general public views some of these things. So mm -hmm. is it a supply side problem? And when these shortages are okay, will it take some tension off the rubber band? Or is it just, we've had a lot of stimulus and just unavoidable? Yeah, you know, it's, it's not just you know the public. I mean, there's a lot of economists and a lot of people at the Fed who you know will say that, well, it's just a supply side. We've got a supply chain issue. And, you know, we've got too many, you know, container ships are stuck at the ports. And once we get that cleaned up, you know, and again, that goes back to sort of the models, right, that where they were taught, you know, what you're taught is if there's a shortage of something because demand went up, then, well, price adjusts and supply comes out and we get to, get to a new equilibrium. And that happens, you know, more or less instantly in the models. And the reality is that that's not how the real world happens, it takes a while for supply chains to adjust. Now, does that mean that, oh, nothing to worry about, it's all supply chain? You know, this was just bad luck. Well, it wasn't bad luck at all, right? So just think about what happens coming out of a normal recession when you don't have, you know, central banks pouring trillions of dollars onto the demand side. What happens in a normal recession, coming out of a normal recession, is that, you know, the people who are making stuff, get paid wages, and they use those wages to buy the stuff. Not necessarily the stuff they make. Yeah, but, buy other but, stuff. 
Right. But so, but so the two sides are kind of going up at the same pace, you know, that as your demand is increasing, your supply is expanding because you're hiring more people and that creates more. So you get this sort of cycle, but those two things, national income and GDP, you know, kind of think about, you know, what you're producing and what uh, the income is go up at the same pace. And so you don't have these massive supply problems when all of a sudden you say, okay, folks, we're just going to give you an extra trillion dollars to spend without making an extra trillion dollars worth of stuff. Hey, guess what? There's right. a shortage. And it creates a disequilibrium. A disequilibrium. Right. No, that's exactly right. And moreover, you know, again, in economic theory, you don't care about disequilibriums. They resolve into equilibriums. Right. But in the real world, what happens is partially a price response. You get inflation to ration the shortage or the, the lack of supply. But the other thing is that the shortage itself is unmeasured inflation, that because supply cannot fully respond to the equilibrium, you know, neither does price. And so what will happen as the supply chain comes back online gradually is prices will keep going up <laughs> because that's part of the getting to equilibrium part is that. And so, you know, at some point when the supply chains have all resolved at higher prices than they are currently, then yes, we're going to go from 5% inflation or 6% headline inflation. We'll get over 6% in the next couple of months. We'll go from five or 6% inflation back to three or 4%. But I think we have sort of permanently broken the sort of the natural equilibrium we'd kind of reached at one and a half or 2% inflation. And we're just going to have a higher equilibrium, but we are going to eventually the price increases will probably slow. It's just, it's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen for at least until late next year and, and maybe not until 2023. I love this stuff. <laughs> Can you, I know, it's, I know it's sad, right? Uh, yeah. It gives you some insight into my social life, but um <laughs> That's, that's not true. It's great because of my wife. But so in your mind, it's an unusual recovery. What does it mean? Maybe for the next, I don't know, this is a crazy thing, but maybe we could have you on next quarter. And can you give us like what you think is going to happen in the next quarter? And then do you have a kind of a longer view or how do you kind of put it together as to, you know, take your views and in, into a, a higher level outlook? Sure, sure. So actually the inflation derivatives market kind of allows you to get a look at sort of the monthly prints in advance, not the real monthly prints, but what the market thinks. And sort of based on on that, we know that headline inflation is likely to be above 6% in the next couple of months. A lot of that's energy pass through. And, and the real question is what's core, what's the median, you know, what are, what are all those things going to do? In my view, Core inflation is going to, into early part of next year, is going to be over 5%. The housing, the shelter component is going to take a while to resolve. And that's going to keep an upward pressure on core and median for a while. The really interesting thing to watch will be the sort of dispersion statistics of how broad, how broadly we're seeing these price increases. As I said, right now, 80% are inflating faster than two and a quarter. I suspect that's going to continue to be broad and to stay broad and maybe even to broaden further. And so that's what to watch, because if that happens, 
then we're not just waiting for now shelter to adjust. That says everything has got to adjust higher. And as I said, if the supply chain thing is real, as it gets resolved, you'll see higher prices along with the resolution. And so, and so we have a ways to go. If you increase the money supply 25, 30%, then monetary theory says that you need to have the price level go up 25 or 30%, less than that, because you're some of that is going into actual growth, but you've got to see the actual price level go up, you know, high double digits, you know, high teens. And that won't happen in one year, but that says it's a multi-year process of 5% or 6% or something like that. So I, I think that we're going to keep having pressure well into 2022. And, and like I said, maybe 23. It's so this is, I'm, I'm like dumbfounded by that. So I'm just trying to process it, but also, <laughs> right. So the way that finance is taught, the 10-year note has a real rate component and an inflation expectation. Add those two together, you get the nominal yield. Happy days, right? So you're looking mm -hmm. at a 5% core rate of inflation, 10-year notes at 160, call it, real rates negative three and a half, whatever the math is. And you go, okay, now, if the bond market was allowed to just trade, right? That would be a substantial increase in the yield of the 10-year note, and which would be, I mean, if that's an eight duration, for every percentage point increase, you've got an 8% decrease in price-ish. So- it's a I bad. Mean, it's a bad day. Yeah, it's, it's a, a bad, bad day. day. People yeah. would people would stop listening <laughs> if I use the term convexity. So, but at, right. at, the, at the end of the day, right, that's rough. So, is it? I mean, the central banks have to keep their thumb on the scale of, and hold down that rate, right? I mean, it would yeah, be catastrophic. Yeah, I mean, look, it's really hard to figure out, you know, how you get this mess in a way that is good for asset markets. You know, because if the Fed, and for that matter, for the U.S. Treasury, who has to pay interest now on and many trillion more bonds, if you want to keep interest rates low, then that means you have to keep buying more bonds, which puts more money into the system, and that's not likely to work. You know, one of the reasons that asset markets are as high as they are is that the repression of the overnight rate, of very short rates, means that, you know, everybody who doesn't like 35 PEs on stocks and 1% yields on bonds, you know, they're all hanging out in cash, which you could stomach when inflation was at 1%, but now inflation is at 5%. And you're like, well, holding cash at 5% inflation is a, is a really bad idea. So I've got to do something with it. I think there's a lot of the flows you're seeing going into stocks, commodities, and sustaining these levels of bond yields are coming out of deadly cash. So when you think about the next step and how do you then unwind that, what makes the music stop is people have moved all the cash that they want to into the market and eventually that music stops playing and then everybody looks at value. But it's very hard to figure out when that will happen. But if interest rates are allowed to get to the, the level that where they're reflecting inflation expectations and reasonable real rates, then, you know, it's obviously really bad for bonds, but it's also going to be bad for equities in that case as well. So, so let's wrap on a happy note. Just tell people what you do. Like, what's the name of your firm? You've got a new podcast. How do people get a hold of you? You do economic, <laughs> you do inflation consulting, right? That's what you do. I do. We so, do all kinds of stuff. All if it's, kinds if of it's, stuff. 
Yeah, if it's if it's related to inflation, that's what we do. They call me the inflation guy. And we actually have a new app. That's the inflation guy app. Wow. Trying to figure out look exactly at you. All yeah. Right. So you should look at it. So it's got a logo that looks, uh, it's me in a Superman costume, kind of uh, totally anatomically correct. I'm just going to mention that when you see it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's, I got guns. I got guns. I so, like it. Yeah. So we have that. We have the new podcasts, nine episodes in. It's called Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. My company is Enduring Investments. So you can go to enduringinvestments.com and fill out a, uh, the contact form there. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of around. I was in Business Week recently, lots of fun stuff. And so what do we do? We consult with corporations, insurance companies, asset managers on these things, not as much forecasting as sort of diagnosing. Where's the leak? You know, I kind of say we're, we're sort of the Sloan Kettering for inflation. You know, we specialize in the, the diagnosis, management, and, and reduction of inflation-related risks. I think last time I was on, I, I said we were inflation plumbers. So I'm just kind of, I'm going to like change our model here on the fly. But we also manage assets ourselves. We're actually, we've got a strategy that we're in the process of deploying. I have to be careful how we say all this so I don't make everybody mad. But that is effectively, uh, the whole point of it is to give people inflation protected cash, if you will. And so it's supposed to track month on month CPI inflation plus a little bit. And it has a very high, like a 0.7 correlation to the month on month changes in CPI, leading it by a month. And the idea is, you know, when we didn't realize when we deployed this, how popular it would be that, you know, people really do hate cash. They really do hate cash. And so you give them an opportunity to get inflation protection on their cash, meaning that they don't have to go and plunge it into stocks. And you know, right now with inflation at four or five, six percent and cash yielding zero, that seems like it's a it's not a bad thing to think about doing. And so that's the sort of thing we do. We do strategies that involve commodities or inflation, FX. We also do it in non-dollar currencies as well. So very cool. Mike Ashton, the inflation guy. Thanks for being on. I hope I come back. I hope my forecasts are are good. Me too, on both fronts. <laughs> I hope you come back too. If you have ideas for a podcast, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast. Podcast.